podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. We are going to talk about the World Cup final because it just happened and we just did a 10-minute chat beforehand, not realising <laughs> that we hadn't yet pressed record. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that we were confused. We just couldn't help but talk about this, what was going on. Um, I'm going to start with this, Barrett. Uh, you've got a situation where Australia have Mitchell Stark, who from 2012 to whenever Jasper Brumra took over his t- title was probably the best white ball bowler on the planet. Yeah, He gets dropped midway through this tournament for Australia. And England win the tournament, and the player who gets the player of the tournament award is Sam Curran, who is short, not particularly fast, uh, not doesn't swing the ball as much as he used to. All these random little things. He doesn't have any of the major skill sets of Mitchell Stark as a fast bowler, um, and was never really a good T20 bowler in anywhere he's bowled. He's been fine, but mm. doesn't always get through his overs. And he was made player of the tournament. He shouldn't be made player of the tournament. That's a different conversation for another day. Stupid, stupid award. But the point is that they turned him into a death bowler uh, who bowled short and at the body at, you know, sub Neil Wagner speeds Mm. um, and made it successful. It feels like at this stage, England cricket can basically turn any talented player into someone who fits into their machine when needed in a way that, I'm not sure I've ever seen another white ball machine be able to do. I think machine is just the most precise word, Jared. Uh, it, it feels automated. What England do in white ball cricket or have been doing since 2016 or 2015 after the Adelaide debacle or the two, uh, World Cup debacle. Uh, I, I wrote a piece about it yesterday and I called it uh, or I compared it to an, an Amazon warehouse, right, where all these robots just are moving around, picking all these players and just putting them into places and putting them into roles that just suit them. Or more than suiting them, it suits this overall system of England's white ball cricket. I am struggling with my voice today. Uh, I just drove through the night last uh, night to get to Adelaide in time for um, Alfie's first birthday. Alfie's our dog, uh, uh, second dog, second puppy. Uh, so pardon me if I sound a little all over the place. Uh, but, uh, and, but that is... That is, and this, this, let's face it, it is a dynasty that they've built, right? Uh, we've seen a few dynasties in men's cricket over the years. Uh, uh, Tim Bigmore wrote a really good piece about it as well a few weeks ago, or no, actually a few days ago, I should say, uh, about, you know, the West Indies back in the 70s and 80s, the Australians uh, in the late 90s to the mid 2000s. Uh, and the Australians did it in, across two formats as well, tests and one-day cricket. Uh, and England are doing it across one-day cricket, 50-over cricket and T20 cricket. Um, and, and you realize very early on that this is one dynasty which is based more, more on philosophy rather than personnel, where you look at the guys who who were in the playing eleven. I mean, how many of them would you call potentially great? Or how many of them would you think would end up being, being great players? Josh Butler? Ben you're Stokes. talking about when you say great, you're not saying England great. You're saying all-time great, all-time great, yeah, all-time great. It's Butler in this side. I think is the only player because Ben Stokes definitely isn't in T20 cricket, right? 
you know, no. you could argue that in other formats. Bearstow, Hales, Moeen, Rashid, all these other players, they've all got very high peaks, but they're not like automatic all-time great. I mean, not all of them are even in the IPL, right? Like, yeah. you know, they're not at that top level consistently all the time. Yeah, and think about it. Like Sam Curran being player of the tournament kind of uh, puts that theory exactly where we want it to be as well. I mean, when Australia were dominating, uh, yeah, I mean, they had like players coming through all the time. But invariably, the guys who were winning them the big matches were Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, Adam Gilchrist, Mark Waugh, uh, Steve Waugh, uh, across all formats. I mean, just look at all the World Cup finals, Ricky Ponting. Uh, and similarly for the West Indies as well. I mean, it was Clive Lloyd or Viv Richards or Gordon Greenwich. Or, uh, but with England, every time, every tournament they play, it's it's someone new. Uh, even if they don't end up as the player of the tournament. Um, uh, you said this just uh, before we pressed record. Liam Plunkett was that guy in 2019 uh, who, again, came back onto the scene, uh, became this death bowler that not many expected him to be. Uh, just like Sam Curran has now. Of course, different stages of their respective careers. Uh, but again, it's it's basically because the system's been built that way. And it's a philosophy that's just not followed by the England men's team at the highest level. It's it's a philosophy that seems to be followed by England white ball cricket as a whole. Uh, right? You see and cover a lot more England domestic cricket or uh, the 100 and T20 Blast than I do. But it's the same, right? You, you're expected to play in a certain way. So if you fit, you fit in, you fit in. If you don't, you don't. And I think that's one reason why I feel this dynasty potential, or at least has the potential to outlast the other two. Because it's not so dependent on on a bunch of really great players who all come together at one single time. Yeah, I get that. There are certain things you can't copy, right? Um, one is uh, that they they came from a generation where they all smacked the white ball around uh, in the Pro 40, in the T20, in the One Day Cup. So they had all these different formats, uh, where, you know, small grounds in England, uh, you know, a lot of medium fast, you know, right arm bowlers to deal with, uh, a lot of throwdowns, all those sorts of things. I'm not sure yeah. Outside of perhaps India, you could replicate that brilliantly, and even in India, it would be slightly different because of the you know the spin uh, spin and some of the kinds of pitches. Yeah. The other thing is that other than South Africa in the late nineties, I don't know if there's ever been a team who's had this much all round talent available to them. Yeah, true. So if you look true. at the T Twenty, uh, Liam Livingston, Ben Stokes, Mo and Ali can all bat in their top six, um, and between them, minimum you should be able to get six overs a game. Out, yeah. out of those yeah. guys in different formats, right? But but six overs a game. So straight away, you're a huge advantage over any other team. And then at the other end, they've got Sam Curran, Chris Wokes, Chris Jordan, even Adel Rashid. They had Liam Plunkett before. David Willey is available to them. Uh, maybe perhaps George Garton as well, you know, into the future. So they've got bowlers who can also hit quite well. And in some cases, in Sam Curran and Chris Wokes' case, probably even better than that, right? That yep. combination is really, really good, and it's probably better than the old South African combination that we're talking about, which was kind of, it meant they had to f fit a whole bunch of right-arm seamers into the side um, because everyone was a right-arm seam. <laughs> everyone was a right-arm <laughs> yeah. seam all-rounder, right? Um, so those, those are two things that, that you can't uh, replicate, and I do think that that is very interesting. Where I think it's very similar to the other two um, dynasties is that... we. 
that probably hasn't been a proper book written about this specifically, yeah. but essentially the West Indies got good when people started paying them. Right. Yeah. And that's not a mistake. That's no. because, you know, at first, you know, they, they, they started to get good through the county system. So they started playing Lancashire league cricket. They were very good there. The county system paid them as well. Suddenly that meant they were playing in two different first class systems. Then Kerry Packer comes along. Right. And yeah. he says, not only am I going to pay you more than you've ever been paid before. And I think they were getting paid about 20,000 to $50,000. Like it was good, good money for late seventies, early eighties, uh, for some of those players. Not only was he paying them that he also said to them, you have to be fit. He got them a physio and everything else. They really committed to that, right? You'll yeah. have a look at the Australian dynasty, which probably starts, as you say, wow, it probably starts in the, in the mid-90s, but they don't really take over, mm. obviously, until the late 90s all the way through. They have the academy system. They have a professional uh, contract system, all those sorts of things. These are two things that those two teams were massively ahead of everyone else on. Yep. We're not saying that they don't have talent, but you know, there's that old uh, Matthew Hayden story about you know when he went to India and he made all those runs, and three years before he rang someone up at Cricket Australia and said, "Can I just go on a tour to India yeah. and like practice over there?" That that would have been unheard of for like yep. an, uh, you know a fringe player to to even think of making that phone call to someone at a cricket yep. board, you know, before Australia had done that, and those sorts of things kept happening. This is a little bit different in that it does feel it's almost like what new zealand did in a way but but with a much bigger talent pool yeah. with much with much more money and then with real laser focus from about what three or four people yeah i i think that other teams could do this but i'm not sure that it's as easily to replicate as academies and um mm. uh, and, uh what was the other thing uh, contracts were yeah. uh, or literally getting getting a physio and sending your players around in franchise, well, what was franchise cricket, Kerry Packer and county cricket back in the day, right? This is like much harder to replicate because you need a lot of money. You need a lot of yeah. people. You also need kind of everyone to buy in, as you said. Yes, yeah. I, I, there's a part of me that goes, do you know what? A smart cricket board could do this. But there's also a part of me that would say, Barrett, that you and I have covered every cricket board and – is there a cricket board out there that would make these decisions before a politician or a stakeholder or some random curator somewhere is like, no, we're, we're, this ball's going to exactly. bounce at knee height and spin sideways no matter what <laughs> you guys say? <laughs> and, and no, no, you're absolutely right. Like it, It's that whole buying in that, that has made England cricket in white ball cricket what they've become. Uh, because it, it doesn't involve just those running the sport or those playing the sport. It, it involves... Everyone, like the curators, you're right. I mean, about creating those kind of flat pitches like they did back in the day in 2016 and 17, uh, where they just started piling on the runs and almost made it okay for uh, you as a batter to go out there, play, play your shots, fail. So what? There's always someone else to pick it up, which is actually goes against the grain of most cricketing philosophies, right? Where you're like, no, 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 no. Don't leave it for someone else. Finish it. I'm not saying that uh, someone like Josh Butler is always thinking of um, Adil Rashid batting at number 11 when he's out there. But that fearlessness comes from that. And that's why it's so easy or seems so easy for them to even, you know, play without someone like Mark Wood and David Milan in a World Cup tournament. I mean, it's one thing not having Besto and Archer on the tour itself, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, like India were missing Jadeja and Bumrah. But to have two guys who are playing very, very key roles uh, and then to lose them just before the semi-final and final 
and find guys like Chris Jordan uh, and Phil Salt. I mean, he wasn't needed much, but just what to have someone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, what, what a player in those red shoes. I mean, to have the confidence to wear those beautiful, bright red shoes in training and in a game, in a World Cup final, when you're batting for the first time in, what, two months in a competitive mm. game. Uh, there's so much to love about Phil Sort and we can do a whole episode on him someday, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, to just find these players and know exactly what is expected of them and know exactly what they're going to do uh, is what makes, uh, the, or it's what brings that whole cerebral efficiency, which I spoke about earlier, uh, to the fore. Uh, and I'm not saying that the cricket that they play is not, not exciting. I mean, it obviously is exciting, but it's uh, the way I put it in my face piece it's predictably entertaining like you kind of know what to expect uh which kind of and you know little things you pick up right jared like especially people like you and me who watch um way too much of cricket and have our binoculars always trained to our eyes like even uh anadil rashid i think epitomizes england's white ball cricket right he was around back 2009 before 2015, before even Owen Morgan was a regular member of the Australian, uh, of the English side. And it was quite sweet to see Adil Rashid at one point, uh, just after they had won the final, run all the way up to Owen Morgan and give him a bear hug from behind. Like, Owen Morgan was a little taken aback. He was just about to go live on camera on, on Sky, or I think it was Sky. Uh, but he was around as a 21-year-old. And it's funny, I, I came across this Wick Marks piece from 2009. When Adil Rashid uh, has played, I think maybe one ODI or two ODIs, and it's uh, you know, and the, the the narrative at that point, like Vic Marks, oh, I love, what a laugh, uh, writes about how oh, England has still not got white ball cricket uh, the way they should. They still are, have not found enough players to take the game by the scruff of its neck, scruff of the neck, and and win games. Uh, Tres, I mean, Trescothic has tried it. Flintoff, Peterson, and Matt Pryor uh, do it. Uh, yeah, try doing it, but then don't do it often enough. So this was the narrative back in 2009, uh, when Adil Rashid had broken onto the scene. And uh, Vic Mark speaks about how Adil Rashid could be the guy who, you know, could be that leg spinner who plays all formats, but also could uh, be someone who could be a bankable option. And you fast forward 13 years. And you see Adil Rashid these days. I mean, there's a reason why he's so undemonstrative on the pitch because it almost feels like every single one of the 24 balls he bowls is pre-programmed in his head. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I remember this moment in the semi-final. Beautiful spell. I mean, incredible spell. People talk, talk about Shane Warne in uh, 99. Uh, Adil Rashid's spells in the semi-final and final, in my opinion, if you put it into context, Almost on par. I mean, he turned the games around, getting Surya Kumar Yadav out in the semi-final, getting Babar Azam out and bowling a, a wicket maiden right after Liam Livingston had been hit for 16 runs. I mean, those are like world-class overs. Uh, but the last ball he bowled in his quota against India, it was just, I mean, nothing really major happened of that ball. It was just a slightly short of length delivery that Virat Kohli just square drove to point, uh, deep point for a single. But just to see Adil Rashid's reaction, I mean, he was so disappointed with himself because the way he wanted it to play out, I just, I mean, he just missed the mark by by, by a little. And and that tells you like how uh, automated, I love that word, uh, England's white ball cricket is, which uh, is what makes them dominant. Uh, some might say it, it can be like you know, a little too predictable, but so what? I mean, they're dominating and they're winning trophies. Yeah, um, algorithmic is the word I started using in 2017 or 2019, mm. whenever it was. Because 
And it's not just that. They did it in test matches as well. In fact, of all the yeah, players who's maybe the most algorithmic that they have, it's probably Joe Root, who mm. literally, um, <coughs> who literally, when the, you know, the pitch starts to spin more, he bowls quicker. And when there's a left-hander on, he brings himself on. And he gets singles almost automatically to get himself off shot. And all that sort of stuff. But yeah. there's heaps, you know, heaps of their cricketers are like that. And they really do, they work with knowledge in a way that other teams haven't. Adil Rashid is... Another one of these players, and Liam, him and Liam Plunkett are almost the the poster kids for for this. Even though it's 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 all about the batting, those are really important because you've got that 2009 period. If you asked most people in English cricket, they would have told you he was a roller. He had a bad attitude. I heard that all the time. He would never be successful in international cricket. All these sorts of things. And what Owen Morgan, I suppose, as a captain, really was good at doing was, was and this is something that you know with MS Dhoni, is just finding those micro skills that he needed yes. to fill a slot. And he he managed to do that again and again. And that's, I think, what you're talking about with this entire team. It really is a team of people with micro skills, but you might have three micro skills and you might mm. be able to fit here, here, and here. It, weirdly enough, goes back probably even before Owen Morgan, partly to the Mike Yardy era right mm. of england looking at these players in a different way to what everyone else um does uh we'll take a break here though and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about uh about the england setup and why it's so successful so england this is t20 cricket it's slightly different in one day cricket and they do play t20 cricket they're not as brilliant in t20 as they are in one day as i think one day is that oh yes you know they're on a different level to everyone else but t20 cricket they're yeah. just slightly i i'd say I'd have them a tier above the other five uh, teams who all may, yeah. may have a weakness, which is hard to get over. But when you look at it, so we talk about them batting down to a number 11, their number seven position actually faces less balls on average than what, they, what a T20 player would per match, right? And so what you're talking about really is this, they give their players this freedom to attack, which is great, but their players don't go out. <laughs> So they're attacking yeah. and they're scoring. And you see it in one day cricket as well. Yeah. Like I remember, you know, Owen Morgan and Joe Root at one stage, they were both scoring at more than a run of ball between overs 10 and 40 in one day cricket, but both averaging over 50 while doing it. Mm. Whereas there was a few other players, like Indians were really good in that period as well. And I think Australia had some good players, but they had, to, in order for those guys to be good, they had to score at five and five and a half runs at over. There's that um, real crossover there. And the thing that I just found just before we came on, I'll, I'll put it in something, um, I'll probably be in a video soon, but I went through all the Pro 40 data. Do you, do you, you you've probably heard Pro 40 before. Have you ever, like, do you really know what it is? Or is it just one of those things that people say and you nod along? Uh, uh, not along. Yeah. yeah. It's a... <laughs> so I I'll be very to, honest. I was lucky. I moved to the UK when it restarted and it's yeah. like, it's the old John player league sort of mm. rehashed. Right. And it's had, yeah. I think it's had a few different titles over the years, but the, the idea was to give themselves this, you know, limited overs tournament. That was a little bit of fun. And for those who don't know, it was called pro 40 because it was 40 overs. Um, and it came what five, six, seven, eight years, whenever it was after uh, probably six or seven years, sorry, after the T20 revolution. Right. And they were yeah. looking for something else. Yeah. yeah. And, and my first thought was, why would you have a 40-over competition when one-day cricket is played uh, over 50 overs? And eventually, that's what killed it. I think as much as anything yeah. else, that, that's what killed yeah. it. But I was looking through um, the, some of the players with the biggest seasons. And Cricket Archive had all the data. And, and I, I can't get all the balls faced, but I can get individual strike rates for seasons. Uh, 
So I looked up Butler, Hales, Roy, Milan, Stokes, Moinelli, Bairstow, Root, Morgan. Between them, they had scored 11,000 runs in Pro 40 cricket. In, and it was only 2009 to 2013, so five seasons, yeah. right? Yeah. And some of those players were young. Uh, you, Milan wasn't very good in the first couple of years. Ben Stokes had a couple of bad years. But still, between that lot, 11,000 yeah. runs. Uh, Butler had a year where he made 440 runs, an average of 55, and a strike rate of 153. Remember, this is 2013 and earlier, when this yes, wasn't even exactly. a thing, right? Yeah. Butler had another year where he averaged 75, a strike rate of 146. Owen Morgan averaged 87 with a strike rate of 147. Butler uh, averaged 137 one year with a strike rate of 133, right? There are 17, year, uh, 17 seasons between all those guys I just mentioned where they average over 30 with a strike rate over 100. And I think there's eight where it's over 50 and over 110 or something as well. Like, mm. it's just ridiculous. And so I, I, I think eventually what needs to happen is we need to sit all these guys down and talk about yes. what this was and what it wasn't. But I found this incredible scorecard. And, and this was just random because I was looking for the individual numbers. But like, you know, on Wikipedia one year, it said like the highest mm -hmm. score. This is 2011, Sussex versus uh, Worcester. Sussex made 399 for four in uh, 40 overs. 40 overs. Right? Uh, Ed Joyce made 120 of 74. Uh, Gatting made, not Mike Gatting, the other Gatting, uh, made 122 of 94. Lou Vincent, 71 of 43. Moen Ali opened up and he made 158 off 92. So a strike rate of 171. This is like, they were playing this in a different way. And you know how we talk sometimes about wind ball helping the West Indies become yeah, better yeah. hitters, right? Pro 40 was this incredible thing where you took 10 overs away and suddenly everyone in England's like, well, we're going to go way hard. And they yeah. obviously went way too hard. I found a great scorecard as well where, uh, Two teams were bowled out for 50-odd in one game, which I would love to have been at. Um, but clearly, you took that 10 overs away, and I would go to these games and just be like, these teams are going nuts. Like, it felt yeah. like a T20 game, but yeah. over 40 overs. But instead of being slogging, you still had to have batting skills. But what you couldn't yeah. do is knock the ball around because you took those 10 overs out, and you couldn't play the you know, the sort of Shikadawan innings, right? You know, that, yeah. that yeah. sort of Kane Williamson type innings. You couldn't really play that in the Pro 40. Um, but you also couldn't play your T20 where you're just waiting to hit fours and sixes because eventually they're going to be able to do it. You had to be quite well-rounded as a player. It's, a it's not talked about a lot. And England got rid of it, and they got rid of it in 2013. And it's 2015, obviously, when the big boom happens. Yeah. But you look at these numbers and you're just like, how were they not better before? Like yeah. their talent was there. Then you have the other thing that we, we talked about before, which is, um, you know, in county cricket, uh, there had been have you ever heard about how north ants were good in t20 i do remember reading about it yeah yeah so north ants basically went look we've got very little money uh yeah <laughs> we're never going to be surrey or yorkshire uh yeah, yeah, yeah. what do we do if we just focus on one part of our game uh, and they used a lot of money ball stuff and advanced stats yeah, but essentially yeah, yeah. It what it really was is we're going to spend as much time preparing for white ball cricket as we do for red ball cricket mm. And they obviously did very well in T20 cricket over a short period of time. And everyone like me and Wigmore started talking about them. <laughs> and if you look at what England did, right? England basically did a similar thing. They went, okay, so far we're spending about 
15% of our time thinking about one day cricket yeah. and all this time thinking about test cricket. It, some of this is luck, you know, yeah, and some of, of it, it is, is planning, but the actual, you know, you and I, we, we, there are a lot of cricket teams in the world who have said things like, we're going to focus on white ball cricket. Do you remember New mm. Zealand did that at one stage, right? They said, we're going to focus on white ball cricket. I don't think New Zealand put anywhere near the level of planning or professionalism or systems yes. in place when they were trying to do that. And England said, we're going to plan for white ball cricket. And they literally did that to the detriment of their test side at, at times as well. But you cannot uh, fault the results when it comes to the white ball stuff. And some of it was already there and they had to peel it back. But, you know, they're still making players, in, in, you know, better than they are, as you said before. There's, a, there's so many different layers to this that I find really interesting. Oh, uh, I mean, look, I, I do remember them uh, broadcasting the Pro 40 and I think it was called different things at different stages, if I'm yeah, not mistaken, even during its limit. <laughs> yeah. I know. So, um, yeah, and it used to be fascinating and I remember coming across quite a few of these guys for the first time while watching Pro 40. Uh, David Malan, for example, uh, and both David Malan and Josh Butler, I remember them making T20 hundreds very early on in the T20 Blast. But also making hundreds in, or at least big scores, uh, in 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 the pro forty or in the forty over comp, uh, and the forty over comp, if you remember, funnily enough, came in for so much criticism, uh, and some of these other pieces I read um, around Adil Rashid in two thousand nine actually speaks about it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure about the Wickmarks piece, but there were some other pieces I read from um, notable England writers or English writers at that point saying. Why are we playing 40 overs if the whole focus should be on the 2011 50 over World Cup? Um, and look, when they won in 2010, uh, this is the second time England are winning, right? But in, in 2010, you saw, like Michael Yardi is a great example. Uh, I think you saw them sort of flirt with that idea of having these really special Luke Wright, another one who played a lot more T20 cricket than one day cricket from what I remember. Um, and uh, But still you had some of those players who are will i mean are great right from an english context and from uh, a world cricket context kevin peterson uh stuart broad graham swan i think all three would make the cut as great players for i mean great players of their era and maybe uh, kevin peterson of all time uh but but you're, you're right i mean the philosophy was sort of put into place before the 2015 debacle but the only thing missing was the commitment and that's what mm. you've been uh, focusing on a lot in the last 10 or 15 minutes, Jared, is it's about taking the plunge, right? Indian cricket, I mean, it's a great example here. Indian cricket in T20 cricket, uh, uh, in T20, uh, the format, they've been flirting with breaking free and really embracing this fearless approach that they keep talking about. They mention it many times. But fearless approach in T20 cricket doesn't just mean going out there and playing a lot of shots. I mean, that's the most basic idea of fearless cricket. It's about who you pick, how you build that whole system, not just with your international team, but in the in you know in the whole uh, feeder system that creates those kind of players. I mean, it's sort of there with the IPL, and I find the whole argument of oh, India have not won a T Twenty World Cup after the IPL kind of really lame, as you know, like doesn't really con those two don't connect. What did the play? Uh, what was it? Was it um, was a Macron and Gavaska said the other day? Oh, the players are getting paid too much, and it's like. They're not, <laughs> that's not why they're failing. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like Hardik, we just saw Hardik Pandya rebuild his body because of how much money he had available to him to yeah. be able to actually improve himself as a cricketer. Let's not talk about, and, 
And of all the players who are the flashiest when it comes to money, Hardik Pandya is like right up there, right? And and yet, you know, it's so yeah. I I look, it's the old Premier League thing, isn't it? As well, it's funny yeah. that the NBA players seem to do okay with it. <laughs> True, yeah. And, and look, Hardik Pandya, uh, you're right. I mean, he was uh, from. All reports I heard that he was traveling with his personal chef on this tour, which is a great thing, which tells you how much he's thinking about his cricket. And if he can afford it, why not? Right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that he wants to be so wary or aware of what goes into his system or goes what goes into his body, even while he's playing a World Cup. And which is, I mean, which I think also t- tells you that he's committed to the cause. Like, you know, he's taken mm-hmm. the plunge individually. But Indian cricket, Australian cricket for that matter, like they speak about, you know, focusing on T20 cricket when a World Cup comes around or now already the talk is about 50 over cricket next year. But, you know, uh, are they just still flirting with uh, uh, being, you know, you can't be half-assed with these things. I think that's where England have just uh, taken white ball cricket to the next level by saying, and it's not that they're winning every game, right? You're right. You're right. They're a much better 50-over side than a T20 uh, uh, cricket side. And technically, they could well have been four times T20 World Cup champions by now. We, we they should have won in 2016, right? I mean, Carlos Brathwaite just had one of those nights, um, and Ben Stokes lost his nerve. They could well have won. Uh, I know I'm getting into the hips and butts, but uh, they were odds-on favorites to win last year as well. Yeah, you know, New Zealand. I mean, you could argue again, they were better last tournament than they were in this tournament yeah oh absolutely yeah absolutely so um even though they just have two titles to show for it at this stage they could well have been sitting on like five in the last five uh, six or seven years or at least four so uh, that's that's the difference between what england have done and what these other countries uh have to do i mean uh, if they want to catch up with england which is to uh not just create fearless cricketers but to kind of marry into that fearless approach, which none of them have done so far. So I remember Australia deciding that they, it must have been before 2019 World Cup, they decided that they would have to bat very similar to England. Mm. And Mitch Marsh came back into the side, maybe batting at five or six, wherever it was. Um, and, and there was this whole thing, go out there and smash it. I can't, I can't remember who was even the coach at that stage. Was Lang, Had Langer taken over at that point? Um, it was that summer when England, yeah, the England yeah. players came out to Australia. Yeah. So there was this whole thing. And, you know, talking to people around the camp, that was, that was what they kept telling me. And I kept saying, yeah, but you don't have anyone batting at number eight, right? Like, it, it's all well and good. And you see this with India as well. It's all well and good to tell these guys, go out there and smash it. Yeah. The first time they bowled out for 70, right? <laughs> you know, and, and things completely changed. England only had a couple of those, but they had so many wild successes because, you know, Mo would come in at seven or Chris Wokes would make a 50 or whatever that would be. Even if they only, even if those guys only come off every now and again, there's so much extra. So this whole idea of copying that thing, you have to copy so many different levels of it. Yeah. And I, and, and you look at the India team and I'd never be forward enough to like send Raul Dravid uh, an email, but I remember, uh, I mean, I would send him an email, but not like, yeah. have you thought about doing this? Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure Raul's listening to our You might get a podcast. gig, Jared. Like, yeah, I think uh, well, I can totally why picture I you. Do it. I wouldn't want to yeah, end up yeah, having yeah. <laughs> they'd, they'd stop me doing podcasts. But um, but yeah, I like if you look at it, there is a way of constructing the Indian side. And and they've flirted with it a couple of times. Yes. Where you could probably bat to number nine or ten. 
Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. That's a huge risk to be able to do it. And then you have to do it for, you probably have to commit to that style for a long period of time, yeah. you know, and, and, and that, that's copying England's method. You don't have to do that. There might be another method out there that yeah, you yeah, could find sure. from your team, but there are more extreme things. And if you have a look, you know, probably the two, well, maybe the most extreme team would be South Africa, right? Mm. Where they're literally like, we are giving up on the number seven um, batting position entirely. Yeah. Uh, I've actually done a podcast with Matt Roller that will come out after ours in which I literally mm. go on and on about Wayne Parnell batting at number seven. So I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to go to, but you know what I mean? They're literally, they're, yeah. so they're taking a big punt in that direction. Yeah. Right. And so far it hasn't come off in two World Cups for them, although they've actually won quite a few games um, at times in, in those World Cups. But if that's what you're going to do and that's what you believe, you need to actually groom your entire structure around that. Right. Which is, yeah. this is where we are right now. And I think, again, it seems like that is what England has done, whereas that's not really the case for anyone else. And it's, it's hard um, to, especially... Uh, India is really, really interesting for me. I really want to do a big piece on their, their T20 side because they haven't been that bad that it's easy to rip it up and start again, mm. right? They actually, yeah. you look at those teams and you're just like, they should have done better, right? And yeah. when, the, when you have that 2015 World Cup, you're watching England going, they fundamentally don't understand how white ball cricket is yes. played, right? And that yeah. was easy, like for Owen Morgan. I remember being at the press conference with Owen Morgan where he was, he was frustrated when they beat Scotland. And you could just see him going, this is shit. <laughs> we don't, you know, and they won that game, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I do think that if you're going to do that extreme thing, it really does need to be almost top to tail. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a tricky maneuver, I think, for any other team to do it. And then you do need the actual people available. Um, and, and I'm not sure that anyone really has... It'd be great to go through uh, India and South Africa, the two teams that in some ways I think have, should have a brighter future in limited overs cricket than um, New Zealand and, uh, well, I think Pakistan are quite good because of the bowlers. So we yeah. sort of keep them to one side. But you look at New Zealand and Australia and you're like, there's a lot of aging players there that doesn't seem to be absolute jets coming through you know, that there maybe that's, were that's... in other generations. The big bashes looking pretty dry. Um, you know, we, you know, New Zealand's a very much early to mid thirties team um, with a lot of their players now. Right. And then you, and then you, you look across to South Africa and, and India and you go, this is the team where maybe yes. there's a whole new mess that we can try here. Um, but those things are really messy and you need to fully commit in the way that England has done. And I'm not sure either of those teams are in the right place mentally or as cricket boards to be able to make those plunges. Yeah, I mean, you need to be okay with upsetting people, uh, upsetting the apple cart and uh, uh, completely changing not just your approach, but your culture if you want to go down that way, like England did, uh, right? And another dynasty or dynasty we didn't speak about is West Indies in T20 cricket. I know uh, our Caribbean cricket podcast guys will bury us if you don't mention them. Uh, <laughs> between say, I would say 2011 and 2016, like when they won those two trophies. But um, but that was a very different... Uh, uh, even there, there was commitment to the cause where the big players were just allowed to go and do whatever they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But come the World Cup, they all came together, even if a lot of them at many points didn't see eye to eye. 
they were still committed to a cause, which is what was lacking with this current West Indies side. And obviously, uh, in some, uh, it, it, it's at some levels again, it, you're talking about a lot of great players in that particular format coming together at the same point, unlike what we are seeing uh, yeah. seeing with England. Yeah, but, but I mean, but, but the reason they couldn't replicate that is because. That basically happened because those guys all went off and became a, a bit like what happened in the 80s, right? Yes. In the, in the late exactly. 70s. Those guys all went off and became professional when no one else was. And then by the time everyone else out caught up to them, the West Indies mm. had nothing to go to, right? There was, yes. you know, and, and, and we talk about great players and everything else, but you become great by being tested, by playing for your, you know, playing for money and you exactly. know, working on your game and working on your diet yeah. and working on your body and all those sorts of things. So... It is, I, I think you're right, you know, it, it, a lot of those other ones, either, I, I do think someone can catch up to England, right? Yeah. But there's a couple of things that I think is worth saying. One is, as we go more and more to franchise cricket, is anyone else going to have the money mm. to catch up with what England is currently doing and the desire to do it? Yes. Right? And the second is, India is the most obvious team to be able to rip themselves up and just build it back up from scratch. And you do look at the IPL and you go, that was more or less their best squad. You could quibble about one or two players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no five players that they would have brought into that squad that would have made them win that World Cup any more than what they had there, right? That's not the case of the 2015 England World Cup squad yeah, yeah, yeah. where you're yeah. like, where's Ben Stokes? Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> so so there are there are some differences there. But that's my, 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 the interesting thing about India is, will they ever be so bad at a tournament where you're just mm, like, all right, true. let's start again. And with South Africa, yes, theoretically they could do it, but there's the politics of the selection there. There's also the fact that will they even be able to keep their best players anymore yeah, as franchise true. stuff happens. And so England maybe are in a perfect environment where they might make enough money. They can keep still keep their international players happy enough to play for them because you still make a lot of money from playing for England. Right, yes, like there's there's a reason like why those guys aren't disappearing um, mm. in higher numbers. Like even KP, he tried to keep both jobs. He's not an idiot, right? <laughs> um, he did. And, and so, so I do think it's a really, really interesting one. So that that's the that's the space race part of it for me is whether England have just made a system that will keep going. Now, you and I, you know, I mean, they can't find anyone to bat in red ball cricket anymore. So with all mm. their money and all their skills uh, in exactly. the in the game that they loved for a long time, they haven't been able to find anything there. It could be slightly generational, and all these things come together. And the all rounders, they're not going to keep finding these all rounders. I, I refuse to believe they're going to keep finding all this many all-rounders. But I do think that it is a hard thing to replicate when everything about modern cricket is going in the direction it is and you've got this one team who's off on the side perhaps planning and, and playing it in a slightly different way to everyone else. There's only one team I can compare uh, this England white ball cricket team to. That's the Australian women's team. And the con I mean, you can say uh, there's a Matthew Mott uh, connection link between the two and I mean what what a performance from Matthew Modest coach right two World Cups in the same year uh, uh, women's cricket men's cricket Australia England uh, and of course Matthew Mott inherited uh, this great culture that was set in place in England but he played a huge role in creating that culture in Australia and Australian women's cricket and um, like you said there about the England men's team 
Uh, I've heard so many people who've covered a lot of women's cricket saying, at some point, Australia will have to stop producing these incredible all-rounders. It's very similar, right? The Australian Mm. women's team bat from literally 1 to 10 most times. uh, And they just have players who can bowl... Uh, and you know, fill up the the other person's quota at any time. So there are so many who, I mean, uh, don't bowl their full quota or don't bowl at all, but still are useful with the bat. So I think uh, again, it it that took a lot of commitment and taking a, a plunge. Different circumstances, like you know, you're not competing with a lot of Test cricket there, for example. But again, like you said, I mean, there are so many people in England who are upset with how their Test teams going, but then there are also a lot of people who say. Okay, I mean, maybe we'll have to address it at some point. But for now, we are on top in white ball cricket. And like we said at the top of the show, this era has the potential to carry forward or carry on for quite a while uh, from now. And uh, yeah, unless other teams catch up, England should win a few more world titles. So the Australian women's team are further away from their opponents than I think the England white ball men's team is, right? However... BCCI could close that gap in five years if they ever spend yes. any money, right? England, ECB also could probably close that gap quite quickly. And you could probably do some really interesting stuff. In, well, New Zealand's already, you know, trying to um, pay their players at a similar wage. Yes. Um, you know, and, and you could probably do something very similar in South Africa very quickly. The, I'm not sure that's as easy to do in the men's game. Yeah, right, which is a really true. interesting thing. So what the ha- we're going to look back on this in about twenty years' time and just be like, Australia w- women won all those games because they paid their players. Mm. That's what you're supposed to do. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I, I think that's going to be slightly different to what we look back on for England. But either way, I think it's very uh, fascinating. All right, one last break, and then we'll come back. And I want to ask you about the fact that how confusing this is that this is England. All right, Barat. So, fine, we get it. They're very good. Um, I sent out a tweet the other day praising the team and I only got one negative comment. And I've been saying this for a long time. There's a Twitter thread I wrote in 2017 or 2018 where I was like, guys, this is the most interesting cricket nation in the world. And you've got to stay with me on this because I know that's not what you're expecting to hear about England. Um, But essentially, you could see it coming (coughs) from a long way out that they were trying a lot of things and one or two things was going to stick. And obviously Mm. it really has, but we are both historians and we both know a lot about the history of the game. Uh, In 1980s, England had the second best ODI record in the world. That was when no one was taking ODI cricket seriously. And they were a long way behind the West Indies from the very moment that one day cricket gets taken seriously, England fall off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) They are not even involved with limited overs cricket for the best part of 23 years outside of Adam Holyoke uh, winning a champions trophy that wasn't even a champions trophy. In Sharjah, yes. Yeah, and the T10 tournament, sorry, T20 tournament in 2010 when really, I'm not downplaying what those early T20 sides did, but almost anything before 2012. Yeah. Even 2012 is a bit... You know, uh, mm. people didn't really know what they were doing, at, maybe outside the West Indies. But um, it is incredible to think that when I did my history of Test Cricket book, which is really more mm. history of cricket book, you go all the way through and really from Second World War on, England is no longer the story of cricket. 
yeah. they're not one of the dominant teams very often. They have a couple of good decades in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, of course. Uh, but they're not, they're not pioneering very much at all. Um, New Zealand's become uh, the sort of the intellectual cricket power base, right? And India become the political power base. Australia become, well, Australia continue to be the dominant team. Yeah, West yeah. Indies have this incredible run. Sri Lanka change T20 cricket and go from not a test nation to this. Pakistan have their bit. Like everyone's got this incredible yeah. moment or something happening. And England cricket is just nowhere. And even mm. when they get to number one in the world around what, 2010, 2011, whenever it was in, in test cricket, everyone, just at the point where we're all like, wow, this is a good team. It just crumbles. Yes. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> South Africa, who doesn't get enough credit for how good they were for a long time. Yeah. They, they, that felt like a mini dynasty. Whereas in, in England, it felt like, oh, they're number one. Oh, it's gone. Well, that was nice. <laughs> True. And, True. And, and so they just haven't been a relevant team. And for people like you and me who like to cover cricket all around the world and you know, look at things that slightly differently. In some, in sometimes it's like, uh, you and I had a conversation off air recently about not giving a shit about ha Harry Brook. And the reason that we didn't is every young England player is like so overhyped. And it's like, <laughs> and then you see Ollie Pope once play spin and you're just like, yeah, I mean, he's really good. Don't get me wrong, but how's yeah. he going to go in Asia? Um, exactly. You know, and yeah. then you see Tom Wesley play a ball off his pads and everyone goes, yeah, that's the guy. And you're like, that's well, he's it. averaging 34 in first-class cricket. Uh, and don't get me started on James Vince. Mm. Um, well, you see these guys come through over and over again that we have almost downplayed it. But it's so over the top and obvious now that it would be silly for even us who don't like bigging up the big three to ever downplay what England are currently doing. Because as you said, it is going towards a proper old school cricket dynasty at a, at a rate almost as quickly as these guys bat. Uh, and you missed out on Zimbabwe and Kenya. I think they were more exciting teams yeah. oh, <laughs> towards the end of the 90s. Yeah. Ireland and Afghanistan you could throw in. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like so many absolutely. teams had these little moments. Yes. And England was, and you were sitting there going, I don't know. Uh, Adam Holyoke, those 14 games. <laughs> <laughs> or Neil Fairbrother. I mean, look, they, uh, Australia, and just justifiably so, always talk about Dean Jones having revolutionized 50-over cricket. Uh, but, I, I, okay, I, I'm not comparing Neil Fairbrother and Dean Jones. Of course not. But I think Neil Fairbrother, what, played three, four World Cups and... Uh, he got one-day cricket before everybody else in England uh, got one-day cricket. And what, he's got three... He's, isn't he the player manager for at least three of the players who won the World Cup this time? Oh, probably not. He's player manager for half the England setup, isn't he? <laughs> I think he might be my manager at this point. Like, he's he's all over the shop. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that the Neil Fairbrother shadow still, like, you know, exists or this English uh, white ball dominance. But you're absolutely right. I mean, England were put it mildly boring like for the longest time right like there was nothing about their cricket which was exciting they were like great exciting players of course Kevin Peterson Andrew Flintoff uh Alistair Cook a great player of course and there's so many Even others guys but like Alex Stewart Darren Goff oh yeah Andy Caddick um th there was and, and they had the greatest stories too like Hick and Ramprakash yeah you know even someone like Butch who was like Picked when he was too young, didn't know yeah, what batting yeah. was, had all this this random career. Like there was there was stories there, and they weren't as bad as we remember. Like no, if you no, no. if you go back and you know Emma John's written a book and and Butch did the documentary about it, and you go back and you go, 
it was a pretty good era of cricket where there was about seven or eight teams who were all of a similar standard and maybe, you know, a yeah. couple of teams just slightly elevated. They weren't quite as bad as we remembered, but they were also absolutely nowhere near the conversation. Like if you, if you were to go that Cook and, uh, sorry, the Goff and Caddick partnership, they were really good. You still got, and Goffy would admit this, they might've been the fifth best new ball partnership at best. And yeah. it wasn't because they weren't good. It's just that Wackar and Wasim and Donald yeah. and Pollock and Kirtley and Courtney and, you know, <laughs> it, did, it was just everything was going on at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'll put it this way. I mean, there was never a time, or at least when we were growing up as people and we were growing up as journalists, where uh, you could ever jump or you had a reason to jump on the English bandwagon, right? I think there were at different points people... Uh, jumped on the South African bandwagon during the late 90s, early 2000s, the New Zealand bandwagon around that time and at different stages in the last 20, 30 years, definitely the West Indies bandwagon. Uh, I mean, everybody just wanted India to fail unless they were India, but that's a different story altogether. The Pakistani bandwagon, the Sri Lankan bandwagon, but at no point um, since 1985 when I was born, have I, I do I remember a time when there were a bunch of people, non-English fans who were like, oh, wow, I really like what England are yeah. doing. I'm going to like, you know, jump on this bandwagon and support them. Till now, even now it's done pretty grudgingly. Uh, I see still see some commentary on social media where people are like, oh, they got lucky. Ben Stokes should have been out 10 times before he saw them home and all that. But I think England have finally become, you're right, a team which uh, as a neutral you can really get excited about. E even though, you know, like I said earlier, you know what to expect. But even that is quite exciting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember when they got good and they went to number one in the world and they played South Africa in 2012. And, I, and, and they just got really good and the English press hadn't even really got behind them. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. the England press yeah, weren't yeah. like, hey, everyone, this is a team. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it was already clear at that stage. And I wrote a piece really early on in 2012 going, yeah, I think this team's already on the slide, sadly. <laughs> I, I think this is going. But even if you think back to that team, that was the old, that was the Moneyball test team, which was yeah. Trot, Strauss, Cook, grinding it out. You then had, to be fair, Bell, Peterson, Pryor, um, Flintoff, when, I suppose, well, actually, it was probably just beyond him, but, you know, yeah, that yeah. sort of period of those guys coming in and whacking it. But it And the, the bowlers always seen the ball a little bit too short and a little bit too wide, whatever. Yeah. There was... Even if you're a neutral and you're like, this is a really good team, I'm not sure you were like, oh, England is playing. Like, ne yeah. like even if you look at Basball, right, which yes. is, you know, we'll probably do 83 episodes on, right? <laughs> even if you look at Basball, you're like, oh, I'm going to watch this. I still think they'll end up burning themselves um, to the ground mm -hmm. here, um, but I'm going to watch this. And this white ball team, as you said, it's much more predictable and much better, but there is an yeah. element of, like, if I, you know, you know, with football clubs or basketball teams or anything or rugby teams or whatever, you pick your who you support between the age of like five and and nine or whatever it is. I think yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. average age. So if you don't just automatically pick your your, your parents' team or your or mm. your big brother's team or your big sister's team, um, then you generally pick that team that you like, which is why there's all these like Indian kids whose favorite team was Australia. Yeah. Right. True. You know, yeah, and why there were all those English kids whose favorite team was West Indies, right? Like yeah. th that's how yeah. those things go. This is the first era in in the history of cricket where we're going to have a bunch of English fanboys from 
South Africa, from New Zealand, yeah. from Australia, from Sri Lanka, from wherever else, from India, because it's impossible to watch this team and not go, this is how it should be done. And that, for people like us, is so bizarre. If you're under the age of 25, you're just like, yeah, yeah they're a good team. What are you talking about? Exactly. Yeah. But if you're older than that, you are sitting there going, this is England. This is England. <laughs> this is not what it's supposed to be, which is also now the title of this show, because only because it's the last thing I said, and I'll remember it. <laughs> um, a, a great tournament. I'm sure you had a lot of fun. Uh, next week, we can, we, we'll, we'll move on to something else, but uh, why don't you go and have uh, uh, another sleep? You've done very well to make it through the show, by the way. And this is, this has been our longest uh, episode, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, for me to do it on two hours sleep after having driven through the night, and, and that's that's something about driving through the night in Australia, right? After a point, uh, and, I, and I've done it so many times now. Um, between eight and ten, it's just the road trains that you see, uh, or a couple of cars here and there, just locally going from one town to the other. Between eleven and one, maybe a few road trains, and then from one to five, it's just you on the road. There's nobody else. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's quite an experience. And I'm glad I survived it once again. Uh, and, yeah, it, it was by far the best T20 World Cup I've ever covered or seen or witnessed, Jared. So uh, I'm really excited about where the format's going uh, at, at international level to see all these teams uh, jump up from nowhere. It's funny. Um, yesterday, you know how you listen to the to late night radio, right? When you're driving around Australia, there was a guy, I was surprised, like, you know, it's one of those uh, 25 questions that you have to get right. There was a guy who called from Netherlands uh, for the quiz. I, I was shocked. And then the host asked him, oh, so um, uh, you must be really happy with the way your cricket team played in the T20 World Cup. And uh, he was like, uh, you know, I'm not, but all the cricket people in the Netherlands or the Dutch cricket fans were really, really happy. I didn't expect to hear that at 2 a.m., but it kind of reminded, it, it almost felt like that call happened just for my sake. It was like a reminder that this was a fantastic tournament. That result, of course, uh, was right up there with India-Pakistan for me uh, in terms of just the unpredictability and how it played out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, teams are getting closer. Uh, the emerging nations are have emerged. Mm if I may say so, more teams in two years' time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a tournament where there were so many highlights and so many different teams had highlights as well. But like we've discussed over the last 50-odd minutes, uh, I think the best team won and everybody else has to play catch-up. Thanks for coming on. Go have a sleep and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.